0: Well, keep me company until seven o'clock tonight. My panel got Lucy Harris, who's a former Conservative MEP, Dr. Lee Jones, who's Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and Peter Edwards who's the former editor of Labour List. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co now. It's not just about us, it's about you as well at home. What is on your mind tonight? What's your thoughts on all the topics? Uh, and anything else? What, what should we be talking about, do you think, that we're not? Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me as well. Um, I don't know why I stay on Twitter, you know. What an awful place it can be sometimes. Do you use Twitter if you do? What do you think to it? Nonetheless, I'm on there, and if you want to contact me, you can get me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, we've got an app. We're on the radio, DAB plus. We're everywhere. So, good evening to you, wherever you're watching and listening to us tonight. You're very welcome. And starting today, millions of us will be paying higher national insurance contributions as part of the government's plans to raise billions for the NHS and social care. The 1.25% increase has been introduced despite pressure for it to be put off because, of course, we have a cost of living crisis going on. Uh, In summary, it means that annual earnings above £9,880 will be liable for just over 13% national insurance contributions got to remember of course though that this rise breaks the 2019 Tory manifesto in which it pledged not to increase national insurance earlier on the prime minister Boris Johnson defended the decision
1: what we're doing today is uh, unquestionably the right thing uh, for our country it's the right thing uh, for the NHS because uh, we've got here in uh, the UK we've now got uh, backlogs waiting lists uh, of 6 million people. And that means there's, no, there's everybody across the country knows somebody uh, who's waiting for, for cancer treatment or, or some sort of procedure uh, that is crucial for their health. Uh, and we've got to give our doctors and our nurses uh, the wherewithal, uh, the funding uh, to deal with that.
0: Peter Edwards, Prime Minister there, with a lot of enthusiasm and gusto for his policy. The right thing to do, he repeats twice. Is it? Well,
2: <coughs> oh, there's Boris Johnson out there cheering a tax rise. It's an aggressive tax rise, so that means it hits people on lower incomes more than people earning a higher sum. It's a punch in the guts for any household going through cost-of-living crisis, which is enormous. And it's not even going on social care. It's just going on supporting some of the underfunding of the NHS after COVID. But the reason year one of this new tax is being uh, diverted to NHS waiting lists is because of a decade or more of underfunding of the NHS.
0: And also because of massive lockdowns that battered the NHS. Lee, Jones, your thoughts?
2: I think um,
1: most of that is not correct, as I understand it. So, normally, it would be true that raising national insurance rates would be a regressive way to raise tax. That means that poorer people would pay more as a proportion of their income than rich people. But you've got to remember that this increase in the national insurance rate that's happening now is being followed in July in an increase in the threshold... It at is. ..which you pay national insurance. So the result will be that anyone earning less than £35,000 a year will see a fall mm-hmm. in national insurance contributions this financial year. So the overall revenue that will be raised will be nearly £11 £5.4 of this will be spent on social care. So it's, not, it's also not true to say that none of it's going on social care. Uh, my view is that it's, you don't have to tax incomes... To fund social care, you can actually just create money to do it. So it's not necessary to do it, but it is necessary to fund social care. There is this is there is a social care funding crisis in this country. This is the way they've chosen to do it. The result of it won't actually be regressive. So I think at least at least they're doing something to tackle what is a looming crisis for our elderly population.
2: I don't think that at all. I think it is regressive. Do you think poorer people will be better off or worse off as a result?
0: Well, he's just said when it comes specifically to national insurance, if you earn less than 34, 35 grand, you'll be better off when we talk exclusively about national insurance.
2: Well, I don't think you can say it definitively because we don't he know did. what inflation is, what is going to be next month or next month. But we do know that inflation is raging and inflation is not going to drop back to zero. Yeah,
0: but come on, we can't live in a magical land basing everything on what's the future going to hold. If you look at the rates as they stand today, with the thresholds as they stand today, as Lee's just said, below 34, I think it is, better off. More than if you weren't, sorry, more than I thought Where's off, Lucy? Your thoughts?
3: My thought, my thoughts basically, uh, I think would have to be on some of the comments that Sajid David made um, about how much money is going to be collected and how we actually develop um, and find the funding for those um, for those uh, sort of holes that have been created by COVID and that 250 billion pounds that's been spent on COVID um, longer term. Um, The issues that I find of particular interest is um, he said that, yes, you can only do this through borrowing and raising taxes, but ultimately the issue here is not, you know, how but when. And that's my biggest, um, biggest point here, is that are we really in a position to be able to afford it right now? Can we push it back? Can we make sure that we reduce tax in the short term to stimulate growth, to be able to rise the GDP of ordinary people, to increase the income of ordinary people, and then perhaps introduce other um, taxation at a later date? Although, personally, I don't think any taxation uh, is the appropriate way to go forward, but instead to rejuvenate and to stimulate that economy to make sure that we can afford um, some of the holes that have been created by COVID? Yeah, I have to
0: say, I, I do agree that we have to do something to fund social care, but I would also say that the timing of it is a bit lame. The Dilnot Report was commissioned, I think, in 2010 by Cameron uh, even up until that point, the can had been kicked down the road a long time with social care. This has been an issue for years and years and years. So, for me, personally, a couple more years probably wouldn't make that much of a difference. But, nonetheless, um, you, you must agree that we need to raise more money, there to fix the issue of how we pay for our care in older life.
2: It's an existential question that I think you're right to say governments of all stripes have failed to fix. I absolutely believe, and so does the independent IFS, that, it, that today's tax rise is a regressive rise. I think, to go to your point, there probably is a case of having something like a Royal Commission where you take it out of the hands of politicians. The worry about that is you'd have further delay and it has been kicked around for 10 to 20 years. So if you had a Royal Commission, which would probably be my preference... um, What does that mean? Just
0: explain what you mean by that and what it would look like.
2: the the government... um, would appoint a, a group of experts, and that would be from all the relevant industries, so of course, that's finance, civil servants, GPs, social care, NHS, so on and so on, people that don't have uh, partisan political affiliations, get them to look at all the issues that we've only just you know, touched upon, really. It would be an incredibly long process, almost like a government inquiry, but they'd be independent, they'd be skilled, and they wouldn't be tied... Um, to the electoral cycle. That sounds
3: to me like another quango that's going to cost the taxpayer quite a lot more money. I would suggest that, you know, we have voted for a government which is Conservative. The Conservative government should be making the calls and it should be political. As
2: Michelle said, this is a breaking a manifesto pledge, isn't it?
3: It
0: is, but I also do actually admire the, I was going to say a word that I don't know if I can use at tea time, the uh, courage, I should say. Yeah, I was going to use a completely different word. It rolled off my tongue almost, but I stopped myself because I don't want to get in trouble at tea time. But, you know, the Tories have had the courage, shall we say, to actually grab a hold of this and do something, and it, it has been failed for years and years and years. I don't know why we need a royal commission of random experts to tell us... What we are, I could do it for them for free. It will take me 10 seconds. You haven't got enough money to fund social care. We're all living longer. You've got massive problems. I would tell them that for free in an instant. I don't know why we need long ways <laughs> Why do we have because you, because wants to <laughs> I'll sort it out, Lucy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> nobody wants to take responsibility. That's yeah. the issue. All this call for technocrats, for non-elected people to take decisions, it's because we have elected politicians that don't want to take responsibility for decisions. In this country, we have an, we have an elected democracy, thank God. And people voted for Brexit, for example, because they want a government that actually listens to them and enacts their wishes. So it is not, I think, appropriate to refer issues like this to experts and kick the can down the road again. We elect governments to solve social problems. We should critique their failure to solve many other social problems and we should hold them to account. And we shouldn't expect experts to do their job for us. And just to be clear, the figures that I quoted earlier on were from the IFS. So the IFS is clear that when you take into account the raising of the threshold, this is not a regressive taxation move. If you're earning below £35,000 a year, you end up paying less in national insurance contributions. What's your solution? My my preferred solution, rather than national insurance uh, tax hikes, is either for a taxation on wealth, (laughs) a modest tax on wealth, because we tend to try to raise far too much revenue from income which hits actually people at, at, towards the bottom of society more heavily, rather than people at the very top of society who hold and get most of their money through wealth, through shares, sort property... Are you
0: talking so like on. capital appreciations or dividend? Like yeah, sh-
1: land, land, stocks and shares, those kinds of things. That would be my preference. It's also possible for the state to simply create fiat money. So the state in this country has created, for example, in the last uh, few years to deal with the pandemic nearly £300 billion out of thin air to spend on the pandemic. In the previous years, it, it pumped hundreds of billions of, of pounds into the financial system under the heading of quantitative easing. The government is not limited in the amount of money that it can create to solve social problems. It's only limited by the productive capacity of the economy.
0: But some would argue that quantitative easing has downsides as well, but Lucy, I can see you shaking yeah. your
3: head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of these suggestions are... concepts that I don't think are in the benefit for ordinary people mainly because it undermines the concept of ownership for ordinary people. If you're somebody who's climbed out of um, a a, a low income and you finally made it into that middle income and you're earning 50 grand, um, these these taxes are going to mean that you lose almost 754 pounds in one go today. Which is, you know, something for who, somebody as somebody who's, um, you know, come from a, a lower economic background into this situation. You know, for me, I feel that there's a there's an element here where you you don't have that ownership of your own wealth. How is it that the government is, you know, the better-placed person to spend your money? Therefore, I think the reduction of tax to increase and generate further revenue and make a bigger slice, bigger, a bigger, a bigger pie for everyone take, to take a bigger slice of, I think is of interest to ordinary people and actually encourage that ownership, encourage that concept of having something of your own and the ability to spend it, your own personal um your own personal opinion of how that should be spent sounds quite reasonable don't know peter
2: i'm worried about having more quantitative easing because that was meant to be a one-off response to a one-off crisis of the financial meltdown in 2008 we don't want that to become business as usual and i think the issue about social care is that's going to be a problem or certainly a cost i hope it's not a problem but a cost for every generation and every government forever so a QE is a bit of a one-off solution for something that will always be with us. What
0: do you think about the concept that the wealthy should uh, contribute more to things like the NHS, et cetera?
2: Um, although it does happen, I'm a bit nervous about singling out certain groups and for taxation, and governments of all stripes have tended to be absolutely battered by the media when they've suggested such a thing, but... As the other panellists have hinted, there's only a few ways that you pay for something this big, which is either borrowing more, which is not attractive, or raising taxes, doing some financial engineering, like QE, or making a cost-saving, i.e. a cut, elsewhere.
0: It does seem to me, sometimes I get the sense often, never mind sometimes, often, that everyone seems to want everything not pay for it. And I believe that that is like quite cloud cuckoo land. So I'm looking at the King's Fund here. In 2019 to 2020, the average cost of a local authority funded care home place for someone over the age of 65 was £679 a week. I mean, that will have shot up, I'm sure, uh, if we was to do it for last year, this year, perhaps. And I always kind of hear this chorus of tax the rich more, tax the wealthy. And then I think to myself, but hang on a second, because the more someone earns, the more likely they are to have things like private health insurance and thus be a lesser drain on the NHS. So I actually don't think that concept of tax the rich more, tax the rich more for this, I don't even think that's fair. Do you all agree?
1: I think, I think thinking about this state as a service delivery agency that you're paying for and you get something out of is the wrong approach. So I don't have any children, but I pay a high rate of tax so that the nation's children can be educated. That's the price of living in a civilised society. The people that have colossal amounts of wealth, and that's what I'm talking about here, I'm, not, I'm talking about relieving the tax burden on middle-income earners, people that just get into tax brackets that haven't changed for years, that used to signify somebody being really rich, now just signify somebody being you know, moderately prosperous in the southeast or something like that. Refocusing tax on the well on the wealthy means targeting those who are benefiting disproportionately from the current social arrangements, which allow them to acquire disproportionate amounts of wealth. We don't have equal chances in life. Society is skewed to provide disproportionate benefits to some people. It is right that we mm-hmm. claw back some of some benefits from those people well, to support those social arrangements.
0: I. Um... You know, I could start a whole new topic there because you've just said we don't have equal chances in life. I actually think we do. We have equal chances. We don't have equal outcomes, but we have equal opportunities. We, ser- we certainly but don't. And that And you know, is... I was just about to say, but is... this is a topic for another day of because uh, I've been told uh, I need to go for a break, but I just had to pick you up there because I think that is a fascinating topic and I'm going to make a note of it to self um, for another day. But let me know your thoughts. Uh, what do you think some of the things that you've heard today? Do you agree that the Tories are right to raise the national insurance now? Don't forget, of course... Uh, The threshold is lifting in July. I think it's a bit weird, by the way, why they've kind of raised the rate now and waited till July uh, to raise the threshold. But I'm sure they've got a logic and a plan for that. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about NATO, Ukraine, and sanctions, what's been going on today. I'll have the latest and a debate on that. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Lots of your uh, comments coming in on that last topic. I'll be reading some of those out in just a second. But for now, uh, I want to just look at Ukraine, the country's deputy prime minister, has urged residents living in Kharkiv, uh, Luhansk, and the next to uh, evacuate as fears grow that Russia will intensify attacks there. It comes as America imposes sanctions on the Russian president, Vladimir Putin's adult daughters. It's also targeted Russian banks following, following allegations of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Meanwhile, there's an ongoing NATO meeting in Brussels where General Secretary Jan Stoltenberg warned the world that it must be prepared for a long conflict in Ukraine.
1: We have seen no indication that uh, President Putin has uh, changed his ambition to control uh, the whole of Ukraine uh, and also to rewrite uh, the international order. So we need to be prepared for a long uh, haul. We need to support Ukraine sustain our sanctions and strengthen our uh, defences and uh, our deterrence uh, because this can last for a long time and we need to be prepared for that.
0: Sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. Dr Lee, do they make any difference?
1: Well, they can inflict economic pain without extracting any political gain and that is what is currently happening with the sanctions on Russia. So. It's not that they're having no economic effect, they are. Uh, Inflation is currently running at 24% because the Russian currency has collapsed and about 70% of um, Russian consumables are imported. Uh, There's been a run on the banks. The the projections are that Russian GDP will contract by about 10%. And the longer-term sanctions will also bite. Russia can't be completely cut off Um, and cut off at the knees because its energy exports are needed in Europe. And with energy prices spiking, that's actually leading to more, um, more income for Russia. But if we look at the political side of things, approval for Putin has increased by 12 percentage points to 83%. This is a level of approval that Western leaders could only dream
0: yeah, of. Yeah, but hang on a second, because I reference this frequently, and every time I reference this, they say people will get in touch and they'll do it in a second. They'll go, Michelle, what are you even talking about? You know, who is this? Uh, who is conducting this approval rating? Uh, is it actually believable? Yeah, is I it think, coerced?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, it, obviously, during wartime, opinion, poll, opinion polling becomes uh, quite difficult to conduct, and there will be an impact of the conflict. But the, the figure I've just quoted is from the Levada Institute in, uh, in Russia, which is a highly respected polling agency and is often referenced in academic research. So that's the, that's the approval rating, 83%. Opinion polling also shows a majority of Russians blame NATO for the conflict. <coughs> so it's not likely that, in the short term at least, people are coming out on the streets against Putin and against the war in large numbers, and there's very little sign of any elite fracturing within the regime. You know, it's not as if, you know, ministers are resigning or uh, particular parts of the party, the ruling party, United Russia, are splitting off or anything like that. So at the moment, um, sanctions are hurting. They're definitely hurting ordinary Russians. Um, But at the moment, for the time being, it's channelling, it's been channelled into spine stiffening and a kind of what we call in in the academic, in academic circles, a rally round the flag effect.
0: Rally around a flag effect. Peter Edwards?
2: Well, I think we're well off the stage at which there's any kind of unrest in Russia, and I think there, there are different reasons for that, as Lee indicated. Some are um, a bit of a, a bubble effect, a uh, 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 rallying around the Russian identity. Uh, I think another one is really um, huge manipulation of the media and the actual information that ordinary Russian folk... Remember, our quarrel is not with ordinary Russian folk, it's with the government, but mm-hmm. the, ordinary Russian folk don't get information. I was very intrigued to see Boris Johnson again um, trying to speak in Russian directly to the people of Russia. And similarly, why are Russian government ministers not resigning? I think, sadly, it's the same reason why they're not resigning in North Korea, and that's fear.
0: But I do think it's interesting, though, when people, and they do often, they'll call out, the manipula- to quote your word there, the manipulation of media in Russia but actually, you know, what you see in Ukraine, for example, is Zelensky basically outlawed 11 opposition parties, got rid of private media organisations, brought together the existing media channels under one umbrella, United News, or whatever it's called, and he himself said that in times of conflict, uh, martial law, etc., controlling information is key. He sees that as a key strategy. So, yes, Russia are doing that, but also, so are Ukraine
2: we have got to be clear, and I'm not sure it's 11, I read... You might have more up-to-date information. I read Zelensky... I'm ban- always right, Peter. ..that banning two ultra-right parties in Ukraine. But the point about Russia is, I'm afraid, that the media has been manipulated for years. This hasn't happened in the last four or five weeks. Mm.
3: Lucy? Um, yeah, I mean, I would tend to agree that there is an incredible amount of propaganda within Russia. Um, Putin's regime, I mean... Uh, I think it was on the front page of The Times, not too sure, got to check that today, of a man who was protesting against Putin's regime and who was shot dead and left in the street um, as an example. Um, Would you stand up to that if you are um, being interviewed by a polling company uh, suggesting uh, potentially the one that you are quoting figures from? Would you also be uh, somebody who wants to put their name down and say that they are are against Putin's regime when we are in such um, uh, serious situations of war? Uh, Probably not. So um, I think we should take anything that comes out of Russia with a massive pinch of salt. Um, but you know, why aren't sanctions working? Well, actually do, you, do you just
0: apply that to one side? Because propaganda is a key tool of a war.
3: I also think fear is an element as well, and that is something that we don't have um, within the UK. It's something that we don't have um, within Western countries of our of our democracies because we are democracies. So I'd suggest fear is a is a <clears throat> critical element of making sure that the propaganda is actually uh, a functioning. Uh, strategy for a regime like Putin's.
2: Michelle, may I add to that briefly? Because I think we all agree propaganda has been part of war for centuries, and obviously there's more media with internet and social media than ever. But I think uh, <coughs> war also forces choice on all of us. And, for example, we either accept that innocent people have been gunned down in Ukraine...
0: Oh, absolutely. No-one yeah. would deny that. Yeah, exactly.
2: And I'm not suggesting you are. Or, or, Or we don't accept that. And I think all of us and I think all people in Britain would accept... Innocent people are being killed, and I would describe that as murder in Ukraine. But, but clearly, you wouldn't have a debate of this nature on a Russian TV show because of their uh, controls that we're all discussing.
0: Yeah. Um, Lee, sorry. I
1: mean that's obviously true. Um, I don't think there's any. I mean, no, there's no real dispute about the nature of the the Putin administration. There's also, I think, very little dispute that it is. It does attain widespread public support, and that's because of what happened to Russia in the 1990s when the economy collapsed under shock therapy and oligarchs were just plundering, plundering the state and, and running rampant, and Putin has brought back a sense of order, some economic growth, increase in income, a sense of national pride. That's why he is broadly supported in Russia. It's not a myth. Even if we can quibble over a particular percentage points in the accuracy of polls, he does it in, I'm afraid he does command popular support mm. in Russia for the time being. I would like to go back, though, to this talk about a long war in Ukraine. I mean, we have to hope that is not the case, that the West is trying to gird its loins for a long, crushing war in Ukraine. We've already been over 1,000 civilians killed in Ukraine, over 4 million refugees, and a projected loss of GDP this year of 47%. I mean, this is in a country that has yet to regain 1990 levels of GDP. After its own, the collapse yeah. of its own economy. After the, isn't it the, the only?
0: Isn't it the only post-Soviet state that hasn't yet recovered its levels?
1: Yes, it is. And so, you know, Ukraine is already a very poor post-Soviet country. It's being absolutely devastated. The people of Ukraine are suffering enormously. We have all to hope. We have all to do whatever we can uh, to avoid this becoming a long war. This is not something that we should uh, think is an attractive option or a good strategic. Um, course of action at all.
0: Um, and by the way, uh, Lucy, we talk about um, sanctions and financial restrictions, etc. But it's also a fact that the EU has spent 35 billion yeah. euros since the invasion, by the way. So I'm only talking like the last 40 days or whatever it's 41 days, buying energy from yeah. Russia.
3: Well, yeah, no, um, precisely right. Um, Germany, in particular, as um, as Lee suggested already, um, has been the main country that has been buying a lot of this oil and gas from um, from Russia. Um, obviously, it's incredibly dependent on it, and we talked about decisions earlier on uh, with Peter. And you know, Germany does have a decision. Uh, Germany has a decision to cut off their dependency. With um, Russia, and yes, that does mean some uh, some uh, some some critical decisions for the German people. But this is um, in return uh, for a greater possibility that we can protect uh, or even diminish the concept of a longer war with the Ukraine. Uh, but do really you think hard.
0: German, uh, the German government's response primary responsibility should be to the well-being of its population? Mm-hmm
3: or externally? I think if we look at um, to the extent, I think that's um, a pretty good word to apply here. I mean, what will the German people be going without? You know, what are they going to miss out on? Um, I I don't know the answer to that. But it's pretty clear. But in return, what would the Ukrainians be missing out on? And that's their lives. And I think that's a a pretty substantial and a pretty um, obvious thing to decide.
1: I mean, Europe relies on Russia for about a quarter of its oil and about 45% of its gas. So the EU is slapping sanctions on Russian coal exports, which is not insignificant because about half of, um, uh, about half of the uh, EU coal imports come from Russia and still coal comprises about 15% of, of um, energy supply in, in the EU. So that's not insignificant. But the dependence of the, of the European economies on Russian gas and oil is enormous. Yeah. You cannot simply switch that off overnight without pushing Western Europe into an economic depression, not just a recession, but a depression. It would plunge um, European economies into complete chaos. It would lead to us being unable to heat our homes. In winter, people wouldn't be able to heat their homes. You would be talking about people freezing to death. I mean, this is not something you can just flick a switch. There are real consequences to this. And I think Michelle's right. The primary responsibility of the German government is to the German electorate. Yes, it's got to try and pursue the interests of those people in terms of the creation and pursuit of its foreign policy, but it's got also to look after the welfare of its own own people. So pursuing a long-term disengagement from Russia and a shift away from dependence on Russian oil and gas is probably wise for all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons, but it can't just flick its, you know, snap its fingers and yeah. do it overnight.
3: So um, what's coming out tomorrow will be the government's uh, energy security the strategy. A long-awaited <laughs> energy strategy, Well, yes. you know, it's been hurried along, obviously, because of, um, of the war, um, but this will also signify um, to Russia that we are preparing um, an alternative to um, a reliance on their energy sources, Um, It will also start the conversation with the European Union, how are we going to live without Russian oil and gas, which is something that they might not want uh, us to do. And I remember, uh, I think, back in the 1970s, when there was the oil crisis in the Middle East, as soon as the oil uh, pipes were shut off towards the West, um, instantly we started to diversify our our reliance on different sources of energy. So um, this won't be a positive thing uh, for Russia it will it will sort of build on top of them to, to show that we're actually creating something that will um, that will manage the effect on on Russian gas and dependability on that um, but also you know look at other stuff that we're doing um, more broadly in, in the global stance of things. We're starting to form an alliance with Australia, with, um, with the US missiles, to create yeah. uh, mis- uh, hypersonic missiles, which is, you know, an unprecedented uh, move uh, for a collaboration in that AUKUS mindset. So that unification of um, some uh, with countries that are um, competent at creating these missiles is a great show of um, uh, endeavour uh, to Russia, and they will be looking at that.
0: Well, Let me know your thoughts. I do find it fascinating, by the way, Uh, all these conversations that I seem to be hearing coming out all the time are about more uh, money, more weapons, more this, more that. The thing that I don't seem to be hearing more uh, of is how we're going to resolve this. Why are there not more calls, more pushing uh, for peace talks to get Zelensky and Putin together? There seems to be more of everything. But that, what am I missing? Get in touch with me, let me know your thoughts on that, GBViews at gpnews.uk, you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes. Now, today, divorce laws, uh, new divorce laws come into effect. They've been overhauled for the first time in 50 years. This puts an end to the blame game for couples who want to split amicably. Married couples in England and Wales will be able to start divorce proceedings without having to blame their Partner, what do you think to this, Lucy? It's been criticised by many. No. People are saying, "Well, hang on a second, because marriage is this kind of, you know, this sanctity. It should be protected. It should be no. difficult to leave." Yes. Well,
3: I- I'm not married um, yet if my other half is watching. Hey, if you're watching, <laughs> hint, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty strong yeah, hint. That's, that's yeah, that's a pretty big hint. Um, they salty, yeah, Lucy, I don't blame <laughs> you. Um, but, you know, I think um, there is an element of um, what is a marriage, what, how, uh, how do we confront marriage, how do we think about marriage? And certainly in the past, marriage has been something that we've... Um, used either for, for biological reasons um, so that you can protect um, the mother and the child when it comes to, you know, uh, relationships and how do you make sure that there is um, an element of protection for the mother and in, in, in a financial sense. So biological and financial sense, that it's always been there and embedded within society. But, of course, with your... Um, your uh, uh, your new the, with the pill and with um, the ability to um, manage your own uh, sexuality, that's moved on to having um, a, a broader conversation around marriage. And, and what does it mean now? And I think, you know, it's been liberalised to the point where we now have laws like this coming in, which I think personally undermines a higher ideal that marriage and personal relationships should strive for. Um, and I think that should always be um, something that we all look for is having that uh, that connection and that rapport in relationships. And if it can be flicked off with just a letter from yourself or from your partner, I think I think that undermines how, how important marriage is. So I, I'm, not,
2: I'm not, you know, entirely uh, convinced with this new law.
0: Peter, are you married?
2: I'm not married. And I think the jury is out on what's happening today. I think marriage is a is a good, whether you believe in that, as I do, out of religious faith or social good or economic good or just a stability... Of children, if you have them, I think marriage is a good. But I think the the jury out on whether this is a bad thing because separation is horrific, and if it can, and we're all emotional creatures, we uh, we've all got feelings. So if it can encourage separating couples to do so amicably, there could be some positives to it. So uh, you know, I think we've all got to be in my, you know, in my case, we we'll all be careful of just bashing something because it's a Tories. But if it, if where there's a relationship breakdown and there can be uh, an orderly or an amicable separation where both sides have given up that, that maybe um, safeguard the children from some of the acrimony, I think that could be a positive.
0: Oh, I'll tell you what's positive. Karen's written in while she's listening to you, and this is I'm telling the truth, Peter. I can, you can see it saying, tell Peter I would marry him. There you go, Karen. Peter, see, I I could come to the wedding. I could be bridesmaid. Uh, Lee, you're married. What do you think to these new rules? I
1: think we've got to look at why the change has come about, and it's been something that people have been calling for for quite a long time. So, there's basically there's a there's two different ways to get divorced. One is. If somebody's at fault, you say, for example, you know, my husband has c- committed it seems adultery. seems
3: like you've looked into this. No, I, yeah,
1: <laughs> I try to do some research before coming on the show. Well so, done, we like that. <laughs> if That's there good. is no fault divorce, so nobody has committed, you know, adultery or unreasonable behaviour, you've got to spend two years apart, even if both parties agreed to a divorce, and five years apart if one partner objects to the divorce. And the result of that is that many people who have accepted that their relationship is simply not working. You know, their relationship has broken down. It's better for them and perhaps also better for their children that they are separated. It means it's difficult for them to move on. It's difficult for them to agree the terms of their separation in law. It's difficult for them to remarry. And there is a strong incentive to get past this, um, to invent blame, to speed things up, which can be very difficult and damaging and divisive, and it's not necessarily good. So I think it's a positive change in the law. Um, And I don't think we have to worry that this change in the law is going to lead to some, you know, breakdown of the institution of marriage. I think, you know, marriage has been a declining institution for many years that have got really nothing to do with government regulation, a lot more to do with changes in society, the kind of things that that Lucy was talking about. And if you look at Australia, Australia has had a no-faults divorce law since 1975, and their divorce rates are about four and a half times lower than the rates in the UK so, and, and that's also true of some European countries as well. So, I don't think the law is determinate here. I think the institution of marriage is basically a social institution. It's not really for the state to regulate it, in my view.
3: Hmm.
0: Matthew is running, saying uh, straight to the point. Matthew is, Jules. I think the new divorce laws are excellent. <laughs> he, who wants to carry a ball and chain if it's turned toxic? <laughs> You, you, you do wow. ca- you do carry on. You, you carry on, uh, but I won't read your second sentence out. But I get your point, Matthew. Uh, I've never been married nor divorced, but to me, it seems the problems are not about the actual concepts of the divorce, but the money side of it afterwards. Everyone I've known uh, that's been divorced, that has been the aspect that's caused the problems. So I wonder how these new laws will fix any of that, if indeed they would at all. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, you are what you eat, and all that. Uh, the government is always trying to clamp down uh, or help with obesity doesn't seem to be doing that much of a good job but uh, today's the latest idea calories on menus of the big chains the big restaurants would you look would you pay attention to what the calories are on your dinner would it uh, dictate what you ordered or what you didn't let me know your thoughts and I'll see you in a couple of minutes Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry. A reminder as to who my panel is tonight, Lucy Harris, who's a former Conservative MEP, Dr Lee Jones, who's a Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and Peter Edwards, who's the former editor of Labour List. Now, if you're going out uh, tonight to a restaurant, what drives your choice? What makes you pick what you're going to have? Do you just sit there and go, I fancy this, I fancy that? What about if there were calories listed next to your food because from today restaurants cafes and takeaways with more than 250 staff must print how many calories are on their meals this will be on their menus their websites on their delivery platforms etc etc this is all part of the government's plans to tackle obesity and crucially the increase in type 2 diabetes uh, apparently this is what it's going to take to make us uh, create healthier choices for ourselves. as we've just been discussing in the break, McDonald's have been doing this for quite some time, haven't they? I think places like Starbucks as well. You know, now that I, now that I think about it, I'm sure they have them on their menu. Uh, Peter, would this make a difference to your ordering choices? Uh,
2: no, not to mine. I don't think it makes much of a difference to anyone. Think about eating out. Although it's probably got cheaper. Lee might know more than me. Uh, it's got cheaper um, in real terms over the years. It is ultimately. A rarity or a treat. Most of the meals we consume are either in our home or in our workplace with food we've um, often prepared ourselves. So if there's an obesity crisis or if there's any person that's obese, it's because of food they've uh, cooked at home or just ordinary food purchased in a supermarket and all of this has nutritional information on the back already. I think we'd all agree o- obesity is very, it can be very sad, it can be dangerous, it can be life-limiting, and it can be very Costly for the NHS and therefore taxpayers, and I think probably a lot of uh, dealing with that comes down to things like public awareness, good government communication, good communication for your in, GP yeah. and schools yeah, as well.
0: Court. Hey,
1: well, if the government good. wants good, to tackle yeah. type two diabetes, then meddling with the menus at restaurants seems like a rather strange way to go about it. Because if you're poor, you're more oh, than sure. um, you're you're just, about two and, two and a half times more, more there, likely sorry, to have type sure. two diabetes had, uh, than if you're wealthy. And, of course, poor people very rarely eat out in restaurants, so this is not a very well-targeted measure to tackle type 2 diabetes. I mean, the provision of more information cool, is OK. Yeah. You know, who's, who can argue that, um, against more information? You can yeah, make sure. a more informed one, choice. Two, but I don't think three, it's going to make a great deal of four, difference. The, the relationship five, is very tight six, between poverty seven, on the one hand eight, and obesity on the five, other. And so if you want to tackle and obesity and all the health problems that come with that, you have to tackle poverty.
3: Mm-hmm. Lucy? Yeah, no, I, I um, would yeah, agree uh, that I think I it's just, an overreach ago, from the government. Um, the I think it's an overreach um, I, I from probably really civil like servants who don't have really history, have much to do. Um, you know. Had. A lot of the times, so you know, it's people who have a bit more out. money, like, who um, have a bit that, more finance, who can eat out, thing, and it's, it's often, you know, the middle classes who the who backup. have that opportunity to do um, so, um, but that's um, not probably that, where the issue next. is, considering they're more focused on healthy eating, yeah, they're you know, looking at how, um, how they can, can, you know, do their next, you know, detox and whatnot, so I don't think that's entirely something that is going to be of great concern. I mean, I welcome it, because I find it very difficult to follow a diet if there isn't uh, some indication of how many calories is in something, but um, that that's me personally. But, um, no, in general, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference.
0: But what do, what do we think to this notion that kind of... Because um, I hear this often where... And you just made it as well, um, Lee, you're saying yourself then about when people are poorer, it's those people that are eating the worst type of food. Mm. But I don't get this because... We grew up with no money, and we had things cooked from scratch. And actually, I think about things like, I don't know, your I mean, other supermarkets are available, obviously, but I think about, like, your Aldi Special Buys and your Super 6s and all of your kind of... your good fruit and veg and all those kind of things. So I don't really get this concept that that, you know, if you're poor, you can only eat bad food. Am I missing something, Peter?
2: I don't think at all that That it's if you're poor, you can only eat bad food. But I think we will accept, for example, uh, some food that's bad for you is cheap. And also think about maybe households that are poor. So those people might be having more stressful jobs, more physically demanding jobs. They might be single-parent households. They might have long commutes. Uh, There might be multiple children coming in from different schools in different places. So I think there might be other strains on the family above and beyond what's in the wallet.
0: Hmm. Is that fair? By the way, I must say, uh, I thought I was hearing voices in my own head, so I did, uh, during this conversation, but it turns out uh, I am not hearing voices in my own mind. You (laughs) Uh, lots are hearing them as well. um, Uh, I have no idea who the random guy is that's talking over this uh, debate. Um, uh, We're trying to shut him up as we speak. Uh, Lee, your thoughts? Sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, obviously not everybody who is poor eats unhealthily. And not everybody who is rich eats healthily. It's not to say that that is biologically determined or determined entirely by, you know, what's in your wallet. But anybody who goes to a supermarket can see that a large bag of frozen chips, for example, is a lot cheaper than buying fresh fruit and vegetables. Fresh fruit and vegetables are actually quite expensive. And, yeah, people's ability to prepare them for large families, for example... Is quite limited when you're on a very low Come budget. Off it. But no, so you just of...
0: said someone's ability to prepare food is restricted if they. I the, don't think they're... it's ability. I think it's desire. I, I think it's I... people's desire to prepare food from scratch is I think limited. It's
1: not as simple as that. There are lots of people in this country, unfortunately, on very low incomes, that would struggle to feed their family properly by cooking fresh food from scratch. I mean, I'll take you back to. Your attitude is very similar to that of Jamie Oliver, right, who launched this big campaign against turkey twizzlers and chips and so on and patronizing yeah, school lunches,
0: the... wasn't it? Sorry. The school lunches he was yeah. doing. Yeah, it
1: was school lunches but also I mean you might remember that the you know the Duchess of York also descended on a council estate in Hull, to teach people how to cook healthy food because, obviously, it's just their lack of desire that is the problem, their lack of understanding. So she'll be able to educate them. And she came in for a very rude awakening when she realised just how little money these people had and how difficult it was to buy fresh food to feed large, growing families. So I don't think we should moralise or blame the poor for being in a situation of extreme poverty... If we were to tackle poverty, I think this would definitely improve the health of the nation. Many countries that are much more equal than ours don't have the kinds of public health burdens that we have in this country.
0: I'm not moralising. I'm coming at this from a a real-life experience that I have. I'm one of six children, and my mum might be watching this, and if she is, she'll be mortified. But I remember we used to eat, for example, what we call chicken pie. This is a bit embarrassing, can't believe I'm about to admit it, but we didn't have no chicken in it because we couldn't afford chicken. So our chicken pie was basically uh, potatoes, carrots, peas. My mum used to make a pastry to go on the top and a bit of watered-down chicken soup. That was what we had. And we loved it. We absolutely adored it. So for me, I just feel, of course, there's a thing uh, of poverty, of course, there's working poor and all the rest of it, but I also think that it's, there is a situation where a lot of people... They don't want to create stuff from scratch. They don't want to sit and make and bake and all the rest of it. And I think that's kind of almost as life used to be. And I think it's an attitudinal attitudinal change that people want to go out and buy quick convenience food. What do you think? Am I out of order? Am I making it up? Am I doing the equivalent of, who was it, Kit, going and patronising the people? No,
1: Fergie, Duchess of York.
0: Was it? Oh, well, there you go. What do you think about that? Uh, Lots of you getting in touch on marriage, by the way. Um, Seems to be a real divided opinion there. Uh, I've got to say, the people that don't seem to agree with it. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't (laughs) think, I think the people that are less agreeing with it all uh, are the people that haven't been married or have got divorced. Mm. But I'm sure some of you are very happily married. Let me know if that is indeed uh, your situation. That is always We've got time for tonight. Um, Some of your your messages, by the way, I do read them all. You do make me chuckle. Uh, You do, I have to say. Anyway, (laughs) Lee, Lucy, Peter, thank you very much for your contributions. Thank you at home for your company. Have a great evening, and I'll see you tomorrow.